With the NowJobs app, you're only three clicks away from a new student worker. Let us introduce you to the NowJobs app. That's extra help in just a few clicks. No fuss, no administration. Download it now. Available in Belgium, the Netherlands, France, and soon in Germany. Now jobs. Get the job done. Ka-ching! Some podcasts do it for the fun. Some do it for the fame. Chad and Cheese, they do it for global effing domination. That's right. Bringing America to its knees was just the beginning. Now, they have their eyes set on conquering Europe. And they've drafted industry veteran Levan von Neuerhauser of Belgium to help them navigate the old country and bring HR's most dangerous podcast across the pond to trash talk like never before. Not safe for work in any language. The Chad and Cheese Podcast does Europe. Oh, yeah. There's a big sale on Italian football jerseys at the local outlet mall. That'll meet you there at noon. You are listening to the Chad and Cheese Podcast does Europe. I'm your co-host, Joel. How do you say choke in English? Cheeseman. And I'm Chad. Italy wins. So wash. I'm still just leaving von Uenhausen. And I guess that makes me decoakly. On this episode, Startup Boundless finds a little gold at the end of the rainbow. Hungary is starving for workers. You guys see what I did there. And Google fights France. Who you got on that one, everybody? I, I don't know. Europe has a bunch of countries in it. European. Talent. Intelligence. What does it mean? Imagine a world where it's easier for you to find and know your target group. Where it's easier to recruit and attract the talent you need from a European talent pool. Every year, thousands of corporate recruiters, HR departments and intermediaries rely on Intelligence Group to make that dream a reality. Intelligence Group is the European market leader in recruitment talent intelligence with innovative dashboards and tailor-made research in 28 European countries. It is our job to empower you as a state-of-the-art, data-driven recruitment business partner. Recruiting with data is great. Recruiting with Intelligence Group is better. Learn more about our services at intelligence-group.nl Intelligence Group, market leader in European talent intelligence. Who is that mystery woman in our intro? It's me. Must be D. So D. Coakley, correct? Right? That's how, that, yes, that's that's okay. it. You've got it right. She sounds Irish. Do you know Bono? Uh, I used to work with his brother. What? Dublin is that small. <laughs> True story. Me and my co-founder used to work with his brother. Um, so you've met him? I haven't met him, no. Oh. Well, that sucks. All right. But uh, yeah, I mean, people always joke about Ireland and how small it is. And do we all really know each other? But we're, we're all pretty connected. Uh, so my name's is Dee. I'm co-founder and CEO of Boundless. Boundless is a global employment platform. So I'm here to talk about Europe. Yeah. Employment and HR and how all of that is looking in Europe these days. So you heard all of the UEFA Euro 2020 talk. Uh, How was it sitting back in Ireland and watch all this happening and knowing that you guys weren't even a part of it? You're all rooting for England, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I feel really smug right now because I actually watched the final. I, I have no interest in sport of any kind whatsoever. And I, I am never in a position to participate in any conversation about sport. But when the final was on, I thought to myself, oh, you know, everybody's talking about this. They're all going to talk about it tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll have it on in the background. So I did actually watch the final. And it, it was, a, I mean, it, it wasn't the best football ever, but mm-hmm. any game that goes to penalties is pretty exciting. And we, in Ireland, Ugh. it's childish. It's, something that should be part of our ancient history. Yeah, we will always root for whoever is playing England. <laughs> we have a close affinity with the Italians. We were really happy to see them win. And you you said you like the shootout? Yeah. I can't stand the shootout. It's exciting. No. Nope. Do you like it, Chad? I feel like it's a European thing. No, I love it. I, I think uh. I think it's awesome. I, I hate anything that ends in a tie, number one. Uh, number two, 
you just played, you know, two halves and then you had two, you know, shortened halves. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, get this thing over with. Can I give my solution and you guys can tell me? No, you just want them to play till they die. <laughs> no, 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 I have a, I have a new one. I have a new one. That was that was my initial thing. I've got a new one now. I've, I've, I'm compromising. I think the shootout should be replaced with 15 minutes of no goalies. <laughs> and just... Let the score run up, make it like that. basketball with feet and see what happens. A little bit like how five-year-olds play soccer. Come on. That's not awful. <laughs> that's not awful. That literally is awful. So leaving, I've got to, got to hear from you because Belgium and Italy, that was, that was a, that was a hell of a match. Did you watch that match? Number one. And then did, did you watch the final? I don't like soccer anymore. I don't talk about soccer anymore. <laughs> Oh, hell no. I want to be Tour de France from now on. And today, some Belgian guy whose name I've forgotten <laughs> uh, won the, the rights. Oh, Jesus. Was England's path too easy? I mean, really, Denmark was their hardest opponent in the entire tournament. Italy got beaten up by Belgium and Spain. And it just seems like they were more ready at, at, in that in that final. Hmm. I don't like soccer anymore. Did I mention <laughs> <laughs> moving on, moving on. Okay, so so here's a question for you then, Levin. Is this going to be the worst Olympics ever or what? What's Belgium's best chance at a gold medal? <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good question. Uh, we used to have some decent swimmers, but that's way behind us now. I think judo. How do you call it? Name? Oh, judo? judo, yeah. Judo. If only brewing beer was a competition, you guys would win the goal every every time. That's like cheating. That's like cheating. What about you, D? What's your what's your favorite Olympic sport, D? My favorite Olympic sport. I like the track game. Um, track games. This is how much I'm into sport. Track games. The running. I like running. Uh, yeah, I did go. I lived in London in 2012. So I went for the Paralympics and watched some of the field and track, and ah. it was super cool. Yeah, I I had been considering maybe making a trip to Tokyo to catch some of the Olympics, but um, never got around to booking it, and evidently I wouldn't have made it anyhow. Yeah, no. Some future Olympics. Is, isn't skateboarding the first first time it's going to be featured in the Olympics? It is, yeah. Tony Hawk will still be winning. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little up there in age. I don't know if, if he can do some of the things he used to. Mid-50s? Yeah, he's mid-50s. He's, yeah. he's mid-50s. Yeah, but he's still cool. He's still cool. He was my hero when I was young. Oh, yeah. He's pretty pretty amazing. What's your, what's your favorite one, Joel? What's your favorite sport in the Olympics? I tend to be a person guy. So if, if Michael Phelps is swimming, I like the swimming best. Ah. If, uh, you know, if we have a track stud, I don't know. Track is usually pretty good too. Yes. Um, shit. I, it, I go with the flow, man. If, if d- gymnastics is hot, great. I mean, basketball is kind of boring because we usually run over everybody. I'll go with, I'll go with track and field as well. Okay. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to run over everybody this year in basketball, by the way. Have you seen how we've been playing? Yeah, we are. I'm going to just say sprinting, whether it's in the pool or on the track. I the the fastest in the world. I love watching that. So that's uh, that's what I'm going to go with sprinting. Does Ireland have a basketball team? Do you, do you know? Basketball is really popular here. So they have a team in the Olympics. I, I mean, I guess so. I I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's, it's big here. It's a big school sport here, much more so than in the UK. It's been bigger since the 80s. I'm going to keep my eye on the Irish basketball team. You know, we are we are not a patch on the Serbians. We're not a very tall nation. <laughs> For the first time, esports will be an official part of uh, mm. Olympics. Digital competitive gaming. Oh, maybe that's what's making its uh, introduction this year. E-gaming. <laughs> e- yeah. yeah, but it's an official part. Yeah, you don't have to go to Tokyo for that, do you? I mean, you can do that online anyway. Maybe they'll all be esports after this year. Dude, the the amount of money in that shit is insane. Yeah. Are we going to to sponsor some teams? Something bigger is VR. (laughs) Have to fit it into every fucking show, don't you? Okay, so so big shout out. I'm going to throw a shout out to the Wrecked. Fest crew. They actually had Wreckfest this week in Dreamland. Not in London. It was like on the outskirts of London. So uh, a big, big shout out to them. And uh, I've got I've got a question for for Levin. 
this week, Levin, we saw that Google came out with some new guidelines for Google for Jobs. Did you see those? Hardly. I was on holiday. I was in Crete. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, and I, I saw something passing by and I thought, damn, I have to look into this once I finished swimming and then I forgot about it. <laughs> the guy was surviving a flood, for God's sakes. Give him a break. This is the difference between Americans and Europeans. He actually enjoys his fucking vacations. Good job. Good job. I love that. Speaking of, let me give a shout out to Europe for giving a shit about global warming slash climate change. Mm -hmm. I get in trouble when I say global warming. In light of the floods, in light of uh, our Western uh, part of the country still toasting and burning uh, through crazy ass temperatures, Europe is a shining beacon of a country and continent, a series of countries and a continent that mostly gives a shit about climate change and i'm curious from our uh from our european uh guest what they think of when they look at america and climate change do they think like we don't give a shit do they think we do care or doing something curious about a european perspective on climate change and what we're doing about it i think it's interesting that you perceive that europeans care or that europe as a block cares you don't think they do i think it's varying degrees i think most governments don't and haven't cared anywhere near as mm. much as they should i mean certainly here in ireland and i lived in the uk for years it's never been as much of a voting issue as it should be uh, which then implies the public maybe really don't care as much as they should. I don't know. I think a lot of European governments are like governments everywhere else. They give it lip service. They do the minimum that they need to do, but they're just not a aggressive enough. So when you see the US, you think, oh, they're just like us. They're just, they don't care like we don't. Don't see a huge gulf between okay. the US and Europe. And I think in the US, like in most European countries, there are definitely some European countries, like Northern European countries, Scandinavian countries, where I think the general public care a lot more. They take on more individual responsibility, but I, I think it's isolated to a relatively small number of countries, and the rest of the European countries are probably pretty much like the US. There is kind of change. I, I can't talk about US. I guess you are great pretenders. But, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Panderers, yes. And, and Europe, I had the same feeling about Europe, but now it's changing. Um, governments actually are doing something. Like in 2025, you'll have to have an electric car in Belgium. So if you don't have an electric car, you won't be able to um, to to put it away from our taxes or what's it called in English. Mm. It's a cost. And if it's not an electric one, you won't be able to bring it in as a cost anymore. So suddenly all those companies will have to change to electric cars. And almost everyone has a company car here. So this will cost a lot of money. We don't have the resources to, uh, to get everyone the electricity they need, I feel. Wait a minute. Everyone there has a company car. Say more almost, about that. Almost everyone. Is it something you don't have in the US? <laughs> we, we do, but I would never say most people drive a company car. But, okay, not most people. Probably if you're... Um, if you're a knowledge worker, you have a company car? Definitely. Really? Yeah, if you're white color, you'll have a company car. If you're blue color, you sometimes have a company car. <laughs> okay, I'm going to quote some guy. This is the most revelatory thing that will be said on this podcast. I love Everyone it. in Europe has a company car. I love it. Not the case in Ireland or the UK. No, definitely not. <laughs> We're all on our bikes. Yeah. <laughs> because you're conscious about the environment. <laughs> We're driving cars as big as the island of Ireland in our country. <laughs> Oh, hell, should we get to topics? Topics! All right, this is for our guest. Remote working tech startup Boundless has raised 2.5 million euros what? in seed funding announced, I think, last week. The company lets employers hire workers from abroad while being fully in, a, in compliance with all tax, employment, and regulatory laws. Boundless's funding comes as some large companies begin allowing workers to live abroad. Last month, Facebook said that a portion of its Irish staff could live in the UK and seven other EU countries from next year. Elsewhere, companies are complaining about the difficulty of getting staff because many potential workers return to their home countries during the pandemic, sounds like the right company at the right time. Luckily, we have co-founder Dee Coakley on the show to explain further. Dee, tell us more. Yeah, so I founded Boundless 
two years ago. I started working on the idea about two and a half years ago. I had been a COO with B2B SaaS companies for many years, and I had dealt with this challenge of workers requesting moves overseas or discovering talent, people that that were based in other countries. And I have been through the excruciating task of getting set up for employment and payroll in a total of eight different countries. And it was a nightmare. It was a complete pain in the ass. And I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Every other COO I talked to was doing the same thing. Everyone was tearing their hair out and having arguments with their CTOs about how long it was taking. And I thought, okay, there has to be a better way of doing this. And that's how Boundless came about. So I got to say, this is coming off of news last week that another startup that helps firms employ people in different countries remote they actually received $150 million in funding and uh, that sent them to unicorn status. So not only are you seeing validation from the market in giving you seed funding, but you're also seeing the prospect of, of other platforms becoming uni- unicorns. What, what does that actually say to you other than we're, we're in the right slot? What do you have to do to amplify and become something the size of a remote. So, so we and remote started at the same time. Um, I, I know Yab and Marcello, the founders of remote. We, we started around the same time. So they, they also have been going for about two years. Uh-huh. So a recently founded company uh, in terms of having achieved unicorn status. I, I think it is just indicative of the absolutely enormous size of this market. It's a trillion dollar market and it's growing at a crazy pace. Um, and it's everything from companies having these requests for people to move to other countries, people having upped en masse and moved back to home countries, right. and also companies looking to broaden the net when they're hiring. Um, the, the, the pace of growth is huge, but it's going to continue growing. So there is definitely enough room for a number of companies in this space. I think that the future is is bright. And I think international employment and borderless employment is really fast becoming the norm. It's it's table stakes now for any company with knowledge workers that wants to hire the best people in the world. So Levin, House of HR is in how many countries in Europe? I mean, this is something that you guys have to deal with all the time. And I would assume you're expanding out. Give us a little insight. What do you think about platforms like Remote and, and Boundless? I think timing is perfect. And we are in 11 countries. We just opened an office in Italy. So um, we used to be in 10 countries. And I still don't like Italy, but we do have an office there. <laughs> but timing is perfect. And we just did a big survey. And the results were remarkable. We asked um, 1,000 people in Belgium, 1,000 in Netherlands, and a few thousand in Germany about why would you change jobs? What would convince you to apply at a different company? Uh-huh. And 16% of workers is willing to change jobs if it would allow them to work remote. Now, 16% doesn't seem a lot, but if you ask the same question three years ago, it was like 50% was doing it for the money, 46% for something else. Remote was just not an issue. And now suddenly it's 16%. So companies have to be aware of it. If you want a higher skill, you have to enable people to work remote. And then I think uh, Boundless can be a great player. So I guess those people who invested 2.5 million in it got it right. Diaz, you mentioned it, it's being driven by companies as well as people, but I'm curious your take on, uh, is there a percentage breakdown of that? Because I would think it would be mostly people wanting to live either back at home or wanting to move to another country versus a company who would want to move people to a different headquarters or different different place like do you have a sense of is this mostly a company driven phenomenon or is it the job seeker the the employee side so that has completely changed in the last 10 months or so Mm -hmm. so when we first founded boundless the customers that we were talking to were customers that had hired in other countries so or they were considering hiring considering their expansion plans Mm -hmm. often you know, we were seeing customers who had individuals who had had requested a move elsewhere. And as I, I was saying, that was my inspiration for Boundless. That was a challenge that I had dealt with at my last company. So it, it was happening a lot before the pandemic. But now 
I would say probably 80% of the customers that we talk to, they're dealing with a combination of things. But the pain point that they're feeling most acutely right now are these requests for moves to other countries. Mm. And companies that have anything over a few hundred employees, they have people coming and saying they're moving every week. And people aren't asking anymore. You know, earlier in the pandemic, people would come and, and put in a request or say, how does this sound? What do mm. you think? Now, particularly younger team members are coming and saying, so I'm I'm moving back to Spain. I'm leaving on this date. I'm keeping my job. What does this do for immigration, do you think, uh, in the long term? Because part of it, I'm hearing, I want to go back home. So I don't want to work in a foreign country. I want to go back to where I'm from. Whereas I think as an American, we think maybe like, hell, I'm going to go to Australian work. Or I'm going to go to, to Brussels or whatever. Like, What's your take on immigration long term and how this trend affects how people move countries? Do they move back or do they move to new places? So this has been a really hot topic of discussion. It was a big story in the media in Ireland two weeks ago when Facebook made that announcement because Facebook had their European headquarters here in Dublin. So those people that were being facilitated to move to those seven countries, they were moving, they were to be moving out of Dublin. So the media was in a frenzy and the public were saying, oh, my God, you know, all of these well-paid workers are all just going to leave en masse. They're all going to run out of Dublin and we're going to have an empty city. What are we going to do? Everyone wringing their hands. But we see a lot of flow into Dublin as well as out of Dublin. There are always people that will want to live here. There are people that end up in relationships that mean they want to move and be with partners in the country. There's just a lot of movement right now. We're seeing a lot of Americans. We've seen Americans moving to Ireland a lot to Portugal, hmm. a lot to Germany, a lot of tech people moving to Berlin. Um, but there's just a, a huge amount of movement and upheaval. And I think right now it is impossible to predict where this will all end up when the dust settles. So, so D, I'm going to pivot here real quick because you have a, you are the CEO. You have a female CTO. Got to give a shout out to Andrea Wade, who actually made this connection for us. Such a connector. The, yeah, the ex-CEO of uh, Opening.io, who was acquired by iSIMS. It seems like Ireland is flush with female in the tech space. Is that the case? Yeah, you know, you said this to me the other day and I was thinking, is it? And then I, I, I had a realization. I lived in London for 12 years and... I used to go to lots of tech events there. And when I moved back to Dublin seven years ago, the first couple of months when I'd go to events, I kept saying to people, wow, there are loads of women here. <laughs> and everyone in Dublin was like, what What are you talking about? Because obviously women are still in the minority, very much in the minority. But yeah, I was struck that tech was more female in Ireland or in Dublin than it had been in London, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of women running successful tech companies here. The last company I was with, Claire McHugh, she's the CEO of Axonista, an interactive video tech company selling to a lot of US TV broadcasters. Uh, there's Patricia Scanlon with Soapbox Labs, Ashling Taird with Tandem HR, um, a HR tech company. Yeah, it's nowhere near good enough, right? Nowhere near good enough. And it is incredibly challenging for women to raise investment in Ireland as it is everywhere in the world. Raising venture funding is difficult. I I think we're probably marginally better than a lot of other countries. And I can't tell you why that is. I don't know. And do you think it's more difficult for a female to get funding than for a man? (laughs) Leaving, I assume you're joking when you ask me that. <laughs> if you if you could see my face when you ask me that question. I'm serious. Women get about anywhere between kind of one and two percent of, of venture funding uh, anywhere in the world. They uh, start companies at a rate of I think it's about 30 to 35 percent of companies founded are founded by women, but they will only secure two percent of venture funding. Oh, hey. Oh, no. Yeah. And in the last couple of years where venture has exploded and rounds are larger and there is more money being raised than there ever has been historically, the proportion that's going to women has actually decreased slightly in the last two years, which is really depressing. So it is true. I always thought it was some kind of normal legends. 
put into the market by women, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. The founder of Accent Jobs, one of our companies, uh, Connie van den Driessen, she's the biggest shareholder now of uh, House of HR. And she has launched an, uh, a funding uh, called We Are Jane. And it's by women for women. And they have uh, quite a big uh, amount of money just to invest in other women. So there you go, D. Boundless. Yes. It's a big experience and a big network within HR and HR tech. So, And we're going we're gonna to do our part here, D, uh, for thanks to coming on the show. If someone wants to know more about Boundless, where would you send them? To www.boundlesshq.com. We will answer all of your international employment questions. Oh, I like that. Europe has a bunch of countries in it. Everyone deserves their best job. That's what Fiji stands for. We make a big difference for independent recruiters with the strength of our fast-growing recruiter network. At Fiji, you can be your best self and work for the company you'd like whenever and wherever. We support you with the best digital and online recruitment marketing. We offer professional business development support, recruitment specialist training, and a bit of rebellious network meetings. Let's join strengths and help more professionals find the job they love. Celebrate recruitment and join Fiji at FYGI.nl. I'm a little hungry. How about you guys? All right. Hungary's in the news. So yeah, bad. I know. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> We've, this is an ongoing topic that will continue. But Hungary will allow uh, temporary workers in from non-EU states to alleviate a labor shortage and help the economy recover, the foreign minister said last week. The new rules allow agencies to bring in temp workers from countries other than Hungary's non-EU neighbors. Rules for workers from Ukraine and Serbia were eased back in 2017. Hungary's economy has apparently fared better uh, than expected in the first quarter of this year, despite coronavirus lockdown measures. European countries seem to be in a battle for cheaper foreign workers. Guys, how does this thing unfold? That's a good question. It's interesting that, and I don't know what the Hungarian immigration laws are, but it, they seem to be tighter than most of the rest of Europe. Is is that D leaving? You guys have any insights on this? Um, they are not known for their friendliness towards immigrants. They are pretty right wing and they are anti-Muslim in many statements. So they'll have problems. So they should work on their image, I guess. They're not the country people are running to when they're looking for a job to get a better life. Mostly people from those countries are coming to Western Europe. So in the United States, we have our sort of context is, you know, when when states want to grow their tax base, when they want people to move there, you know, they create friendlier tax environments or like for one example is you see people from California moving to Texas and Florida because of the taxation. Uh, maybe there's better growth opportunities, et cetera. To me, from what I've I've seen in the in the few shows that we've done here is that the countries in Europe seem to be in a similar uh, similar state where, you know, they have things that are unique to them as countries. And when I read this, I thought, well, Hungary is kind of like nothing to lose. So uh, we're going to like throw uh, legislation at it that makes it more open for immigration, whereas a place like, I don't know, France or Germany, maybe not so much. So from your perspective, guys, do you see a similar competitiveness with uh, with countries as we do with states here in America? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I think there's everything to play for now, particularly with remote work uh, and availability of remote jobs. Companies are making and are going to make decisions around local tax tax systems. I mean, if you if you are an employer and you employ someone in Denmark, your statutory employer taxes are about 1.25%, somewhere like France or Portugal, you're looking at closer to 30%. It's a massive mm-hmm. difference. And I think the market varies hugely, right? So if you're talking about unskilled work where people are on low incomes, they're making their decisions based on different things versus knowledge workers on on higher salaries. A lot of countries that the digital nomad visas, the a lot of the countries that have offered digital nomad visas this year, they have a special tax rate that goes along with that visa. And yeah. I think countries are going to start to get more competitive about this. And countries are going to start to market themselves in a very 
different way. And, and I've seen it. I've seen it with the US where states will give people cash incentives mm-hmm. to move into the state. We could start to see that kind of thing much more in Europe. Um, it's already competitive, but I think how governments handle that competition and take advantage of it is going to change. It seems like so being in being in Ireland, you guys are gaming the system left and right when it comes to taxes. <laughs> and trying to get the, the the big companies over there slashing taxes. Do you think that there's going to be a global standard that's going to be pressed so that there can't be this gaming of the system when it comes to actual taxes? Because knowing that those taxes pay for infrastructure, the, the long term, it's bad for the country. So corporate tax and individual tax, kind yeah. of a, a, the mechanics of how they work in terms of um, how governments can pull levers and the impact that has for the country, they're, they're just so different. So corporate tax is a global issue by its very nature. Mm-hmm. So, and Ireland's a really good example of this. You know, Ireland set a corporate tax at 12.5%, uh, was hoping to keep its head down that nobody would notice, but of course it's a global <laughs> issue. Of course, the U.S. government have a vested interest in what Ireland is charging to, uh, you you know, once the U.S. companies started to move in, it was a U.S. issue. It is different with individual employment taxes. And of course, we know the corporate tax thing, of course, despite the the Irish government trying to sit it out. Of course, we're headed towards standardization and and this 15 percent standard minimum is it's it's going to come and in. Is Ireland afraid of that that future? Absolutely, yeah, okay. yeah. Because it does impact the individuals if Google and Intel and everybody you know, takes their ball and goes home, right? Absolutely, it has a huge impact here. Yeah, it it will very very much so. But I I think the average Irish person feels pretty strongly that we need to do the right thing. And international relations are so hugely important to us. My personal view is the Irish government are not doing the right thing by sitting this one out. I think they need to play ball uh, and and get involved and get get aligned with everyone else. But with the individual tax, individual taxes or, or employee employment taxes are held so dearly by each country and different, much more so outside the US, mm. different cultures take their employment rights and their tax systems, they view them as this cultural identity thing. And I yeah. don't think we'll see internationalization or any kind of globalization there okay. any time in the next 30, 40 years. What countries are the big winners and who are the losers in this immigration strategy or, or phenomenon? Um, I don't know. Levin, what do, you, what do you think? History happening all over again. It's constantly the, the movement from the east to the west. And okay, Ireland is extremely west. <laughs> in scale. Well, we're talking about Iceland after this, so we're going yeah. way west. Then we're going to the north. Huh? Uh, to get back to Hungary, the average salary is pretty low compared to the Western European countries. Mm-hmm. So we had a brain drain and then, um, a skilled workers drain from those countries to Western Europe. And now they have to do something because they just don't have any workers anymore. So they're getting them from, as you said, Ukraine and white Russia, etc. Mm-hmm. So they have to open their borders to those people. But point is, they don't really like it. They're extremely nationalistic and they don't like opening their borders. And they aren't as politically correct as the other countries are. They just say, we don't want them. But now they have to want them because they need them. Are any countries in Europe immigrant friendly? Yeah, most are. I, I feel, yeah, of course. Why go to Hungary when I can go to France Indeed. or Germany? Right. And that's, that's, that's Hungary's problem. Exactly. Yeah. Can you get access? So if you're coming from Russia or from Ukraine, maybe Hungary is going to give you a visa and give you access, but you might not have access to Europe. Gotcha. Well, moving on from uh, Hungary to Iceland, like I mentioned, by the way, I can't wait to visit Iceland someday. Uh, they're testing a four-day work week to great success. Uh, two large trials were conducted between 2015 and 2019 among public sector employees. 
about 2,500 uh, people in total, which is roughly 1%, I think, of the workforce. Uh, these folks work 35 to 36 hours per week with no reduction in pay. Researchers saw worker well-being increase, quote, dramatically across a range of indicators from perceived stress and burnout to health and work-life balance. Uh, anyone surprised by this or have thoughts? Yeah. Is this thing a pipe dream? That's the big question. It's Xanadu, Iceland. By the way, uh, Unilever in New Zealand, uh, following a change in working habits as a result of COVID, uh, announced in December it would trial a four-day work week, work week at full pay, full pay. And listeners may remember that back in 2019, Microsoft trialed a four-day work week in Japan and said compared to the same period of the previous year, quote, productivity measured by sales per employee went up by almost 40%. So are we looking at a four-day work week in the future, everybody? So I have a question about Microsoft in Japan. And I, mm-hmm. I do think we're looking at a four-day work week in the future. And, and I, I, yeah, I absolutely think we'll head that way. Yes. But why did Microsoft, why have they not rolled this out elsewhere if they saw such stellar results? It seems like they ran this trial and mm-hmm. then came to a halt. We did We did have this thing called the pandemic. COVID. Um, <laughs> Like That's that happened, true, yeah, right after that. So I, I don't, I don't know. I would assume that they would continue to, the, the testing, but there, there was this big wrench in the global machine called COVID that that I think r- really messed some things up. Do you think if workers had to choose between a four day work week or working from home five days a week, which would they choose? I don't, I don't know that that has to be a black or white answer. I mean, you could do both. We've talked in the show about companies wanting people to come back to HQ. Pronouncing a four-day work week would help help mm. do that. It's an interesting question. Yeah, mm. I don't I don't know that it would. I, I would rather have my freedom every single day of the week than I would getting a day back. Yeah. Oh, it's drama. I can feel it. There's it's, it's the drama. Ding, ding, ding. Employees versus employer. I assume this wave will probably happen in Europe first because it ain't happening in America anytime soon. Yeah, I, I I could imagine U.S. culture and U.S. employer culture being very, very resistant to this. I, I mean, I feel it's an inevitability. You, you know, we've been moving more towards automation for many years now. People are able, a lot of individuals have a lot of autonomy now in their work. If you're a knowledge worker and more and more environments are flexible work environments where you choose when and quite often where you get your work done. There are plenty of people out there. I mean, there are people on my team where I have no idea. I have no method or way of measuring how many hours they work. I just look at their output and I'm yeah. happy. Everyone's got, got great output. It's They're doing high quality work. No doubt some of them are perhaps more efficient than others and maybe they're not doing a full, I mean, you know, it's a 40 hour week is standard in mm-hmm. Ireland, um, it will be standard in a lot of Europe. Uh, a lot of them possibly are not, are you know, they may not be doing that. Um, I'm an output focused manager. I, I want yeah. to know what, what can you do if you, I want to hire the people that are smart enough that they can get more efficient and get it done in a shorter period of time. Yeah. So Levin, has this been a topic that's come up at House of HR? Oh, from time to time. <laughs> and what happens? <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk about this now. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk about that four-day work week topic. It's coming, it's coming, definitely it's coming, but there are some issues, I think. Let's mm-hmm. just imagine you're a big corporate company like Microsoft. You can arrange it, no problem. You can make sure everyone is doing his job in four days and you have automation processes and, and you're working more efficiently than you did before, so you can manage it. But what, let's say, um, education, schools, those kids go to school five days a week and you can't tell those teachers from all the others can work four days, but you're a teacher, you have to stay five days. Mm. And you can't ask those children to only come for four days because they will learn 20% less, I guess. So it's difficult. It will depend on the industry you're working in. And SMEs will have problems where corporate companies probably won't have problems. So I think it will be hard to get it arranged. Yeah, it's an influence from the Nordics and Denmark, Sweden, uh, Finland. Probably mm. they are thinking about it, and they are they will probably roll it out like Iceland. But it's kind of ironic that it was Iceland because Iceland went bankrupt in two thousand and seven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now they're launching a four day work week. I think the European Union will scratch his hair again. 
<laughs> so, so roughly 86% of Iceland's entire working population is now working those hours. And for, for the most part, what we've been able to see from a productivity standpoint is that rest actually helps with productivity. And I say this in, in, from my, my years of being a, an infantry drill sergeant in the, in the military, we had to give our trainees rest so that they would be productive the next day, right? They would actually have good output. Is this not the same thing also for schooling and everything else? Are we just trying to do 40 hours a week just because that was a standard set by Henry Ford back in, what was it, 1918 yeah. or some shit like that? It's interesting. Don't why do children come five days a week to school because their parents have to work five days yep. a week? Yep. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Somebody's so, got to babysit those brats. And maybe we should just uh, offer them two hours of sports a day instead of uh, one hour a week, which is in most countries the case. How, how much sport do you have in the States? How much time do we spend like practicing <laughs> sports? Is that what we're talking about? Within, within the school system, we have... Um, you have mathematics, you have French, you have uh, Dutch uh, and Belgian. Gym, yes. Yeah, gym, okay, yeah. Yep, yep. I, that's going to be an hour and not every kid has to take it, which you can probably see by the uh, American uh, America's uh, obesity We numbers. used to have it every day, baby, when America yeah. was badass. Every day we yeah. had gym. Yeah, you should have made it great again when you had it. <laughs> <laughs> In Germany, it was two hours a day. Yeah, that's that's not a bad thing. I have a friend that lives in Costa Rica. His kids go to school right across from the beach and they actually uh, a few days a week they go surfing. Right. It's a part of I mean, it, it, and to have that kind of experience, to have that kind of experience and then, you know, go uh, the, the, the latter part of the day and doing your math and your English or whatever it might be, Spanish or what have you. I mean, we just have to rethink how we do work uh, and how we educate. Well, yeah. also, if, yeah. if I'm an American company and I want to hire someone from Iceland, I guess I can only work them four days a week, right? Well, I mean, you know, if you hire someone from France, they have the right to disconnect. So they, they can yeah. say so, that they don't want to be contacted in the evenings or at weekends. It's looking like we may get something, some similar legislation brought in in Ireland. There's been a bit of a consultation around it recently. So, yeah, I, I mean, the, these are the challenges of having an international workforce. But again, if that Icelandic worker can produce a, the same output as your worker in California, yeah. probably on a far lower salary if they're on Icelandic pay rates. But if I'm a, if I'm a company in America, do I, do I want to have that conversation with my American employees as to why Sven gets to work only four days a week <laughs> and everybody else has to work five? Like, I don't see a lot of American companies jumping at the chance to have that conversation. I, I do. I think we're going to see a bit of a landslide. It's going to take a few years. You know, maybe it's going to be four or five years and it's going to start in the tech space. And I think we will see a bit of a landslide where it will become a there. There will be a, 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 a it will be used as a carrot on a stick to attract the very best people. Talk about carrots on sticks, uh, and then uh, France uh, shows Google the stick. Yeah, this has been a, a fun story, and we've talked about Australia smacking down Google for uh, not paying media entities. So uh, Google has been fined nearly $593 million, that's about 500, Euro, 500 million euros, after France's competition authority found that the company violated orders to negotiate paid deals with new subscribers. The regulator said the American tech giant breached a 2020 order that the company negotiate, quote, good faith licensing deals with French news agencies and publishers. The fine, the largest ever by France's competition watchdog, Still comes amid a longstanding debate over tech's obligations to publishers. So was this fine? Fine. I kind of getting a problem with this kind of alternative taxing. I mean... It's big tech, so you can tax them whatever you want. They won't pay because they have great accountants, but then you give them a fine and they'll have to pay. Mm -hmm. So this is just an alternative taxing and you won't lose any votes if you're a government by taxing the big tech companies or by uh, by fining them. Everyone will say, huh, good for them. I'm not sure if it's that fair. And I was wondering where is the money is going to? So they're using the media companies, which are screwed by Google, according to those media companies, and they're using them to fine Google 500 million euros. But then the money should go to those media companies as a compensation. 
And now it's just a fine, so it goes into the pocket of France. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a tax if they pay the country or whatever whatever organization does that. But if if they start paying the newspapers and the media outlets in France, then it's a big win for French media companies. Correct. It, let's put in context what this is. Okay, first off, this is a nudge by the French. The biggest the biggest ever nudge. Five hundred million is is a pittance for Google. I don't know if you know or not, but they actually made $181 billion. But it is a million dollars every day they don't pay. This is a nudge by the French government to be able to do what they were supposed to do in the first place was get a deal done. So there's still money that's that's on the table for these news organizations. Mm -hmm. And if France puts that money in their pocket, and maybe they fund uh, their roads and or uh, a watchdog arm to ensure that this shit doesn't happen. Maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. But you've got to see that in context, this is a nudge. They'll continue to nudge them, like you said, Joel, every single day. But there is money on the table. Saying that if you're Google, you just pay the fine and fuck it. You can't just pay the fine. You've got to go and you've got you've got to negotiate. Google's either going to pay the government of France or they're going to pay the media entities of France. They're going to do both. Over what time frame, I wonder. I mean, they are going to do everything that they can to draw this out. And I understand the fine is... Um, is accumulating at a rate of a million a day. But in terms of the, when looking at paying the publishing companies, they will draw out those negotiations around what those payments should be and how it will be structured and how the infrastructure will work. That could be drawn out for years. It could. Yeah, and I think if France gets away with it and they make 500 million, the other countries will think, hey, oh, we're yeah. getting screwed as well. We need some money too. Yeah. And then it's adding up. I mean, 10 yeah. countries charging 500 million makes 5 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and what that'll do, and hopefully that'll get them to do, is actually get Google to start to come to the table faster and just get this taken care of. But do you think Google is wrong in this case? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're using other people's content and they are a lifestyle platform because of everybody else's platform, everybody else's content. So do they both get a quid pro quo off this to some extent? But you have to take a look at all the the failing news outlets uh, because Google is taking all that content and they're republishing it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, journalism and truth has had a big, you know, it's been a, it has been trending down for the last 20 years since Google's sort of been on the scene. And I, I for me, like, I think, I think it's a big win for journalism. If we can get payments into to media outlets to actually pay journalists to do work. I subscribe to the New York Times and I find that their advertising is really interesting. Their advertising is not buy a subscription. Their advertising is help support journalism or help mm-hmm. support thoughtful journalism. And I think that that's something that the world has been missing uh, in our political environment over the last you know decade or so. So for me, like it's a win. It's a win for for journalism, and hopefully the news outlets hire more journalists as a result of of more money from Google. I do think, however, like you know, when I was in when I was in journalism uh, school freshman year, that my first professor said, "What do you think is the most read section of the newspaper?" For those of us who remember newspapers, and the answer was. The classified section. Uh, it's the most. It was the most popular, and also the probably the biggest money generator, depending on the newspaper. And Google, I think it's entertaining that while we talk about more money into journalism or media, Google is putting more resources into job postings, which is the classified side. So while they may be giving money to the to the media side, they'll also be probably taking more out from the classified side. And jobs is just a component of that. True, but that's economy. That's business. That's business, baby. And that's from our Belgium. I, I feel those newspaper companies could easily block uh, Google and keep the content for themselves, but then they wouldn't get the, um, the visitors through Google. So they want the visitors, but they don't want Google to use the content. You have to choose. Well, the, the challenge is more and more people aren't going to websites. Right. They're just staying on Google and getting the news from there. That's, that's kind of the problem. That's Same like the thing big- with Facebook. Yeah, true. Yeah. And and with like with jobs, I think a component is like all these all these job boards are complaining about traffic, partly because no one has to go to their site anymore. They can look at the job directly on Google. 
that's where it really hurts because no one's going to the site where they're seeing their banner ads, where they're seeing their, hey, subscribe to our newspaper. Mm-hmm. Most newspapers, in my opinion, if you visit them online, particularly on mobile, you can't even use them There's with the amount of pop-ups and pop-unders and ads. Like it's just, it's just not worth the trouble and that needs to be fixed. And part of that is how they monetize those sites. As you just mentioned, New York Times, uh, where you pay for qualitative journalism, that's the way to do it. People want to pay for quality. quality. Sure, sure. Not everyone's in New York Times. I think, Joe, Joe, you know, like you said, the importance of quality journalism. Um, I, I mean, I subscribe to a couple of publications where I'm not actually a fan of the publication. I don't really like their style of journalism, but I think they do important <laughs> work. So I pay the subscription and I don't. Really? So it's like charity. Yeah. But I think, you know, in a similar vein, it is the job of government or it should be the job of government now to protect quality journalism and the truth. And if fining large corporations is something that can feed into ensuring that impartial journalism can survive, I think that's, uh, you know, politicians and government are, are doing a great job there if that's something they can contribute to d d the philanthropist next thing you know she'll be flying she'll be flying to space she'll be going to space <laughs> next. Yeah, she'll be she'll be working on making a great startup i'd like to thank d yes for coming on the show and leaving uh, i'm glad you're safe from the floods and you're back on vac- back off of vacation and ready to get back to work my man Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. D, thanks for joining the show. Everybody else, we, we out. out. Thank you for listening to what's it called? A podcast. The chat. The cheese. Brilliant. They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout outs of people you don't even know. And yet you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. So many cheeses and not one word. So weird. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.cheese.com. Chadcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.